Hello, David Oakes here. I'm currently walking along the banks of the River Ouse in York on the way to my day job. Uh, so far, I've seen some goslings, a swan, a couple of rabbits, but I'm keeping my eyes peeled for a tansy beetle, which, although near extinct, apparently has a strong population here on the banks of the River Ouse. Uh, in terms of aquatic life, I've seen a couple of minnows, a few smaller fish, but therefore, you can see what I've done here, uh, what better opportunity than to broaden your horizons to a slightly bigger aquatic species. So I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Guy Stevens, the CEO of the Manta Ray Trust. And without further ado, this is Guy Stevens, and this is Trees A Crowd. In the depth of the forest, an old oak with the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From oligarch to lumberjack, thrilled by dog bark or duck quack, I'm going to talk to people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, we're on the South Bank of London for some insight into the beautiful and mysterious manta rays. We're here to meet Dr. Guy Stevens, Chief Executive and Co-Founder of the Manta Trust. Guy splits most of his time between the UK and the Maldives, where he and his team carry out research into the conservation of manta and mobula rays. Guy, hello and welcome to Trees A Crowd. Hi, good to be here. We're probably going to mention them quite a lot, so I guess the best place to start is what is a manta ray? So a manta ray, it's a, it's a fish. Uh, it belongs to the same group as all the other rays and sharks. And they're actually in a kind of a, a side group to the majority of all the other fish that you find in the world's rivers, lakes and oceans. Uh, and they're sort of classified uh, as cartilaginous elasmobranchs. And it's a bit of a mouthful. Elasmobranchs. Elasmobranchs, which okay. means plated gills. Um, and the thing that defines them as as separate from the majority of other fish is their skeleton which is comprised of cartilage as opposed to the dense calcium bone that most fishes have and you think about a tuna it's got lots of you know spiky bones inside mm-hmm. well sharks and rays don't have that they have this uh, much more pliable um, softer uh, cartilage skeletons the stuff that's in our, our nose and ears um, so that's the defining difference sure and how big would you say an average manta ray is An average manta ray would be around about three to four metres in wingspan, um, but they can grow up to seven metres. That's pretty big. They're the biggest of all the rays and one of the largest fish in the ocean. Amazing. One of the problems I understand for their conservation is because of that cartilage as well, their gills are particularly prized on the black market. Well, the the gills themselves are not actually made of cartilage, but um, the gills certainly are what's driving a targeted fisheries for these animals. So we're not really sure how and when it occurred, but a couple of decades ago, there was uh, uh, a uh, an opportunity to to I guess market manta ray gill plates as a, a remedy and a tonic in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. um, which. Uh, resulted in people going out and fishing these animals to harvest the gills, which could be sold for a lot of money. And then they were traded um, legally um, and people would consume the gills because 
uh, the, the sales pitch went a bit like manta rays are large animals that use these gills to filter uh, food from the water using these these, these uh-huh. filter pads in their in their mouths. If you consume the gill, it will filter, filter all the bad purification things. and detoxification of your your body. Why have a water um, filter in your kitchen when you can have a manta rays gill set inside you? Yes, and of course, it's a hell of a marketing strategy. It's you know it it, it plays into. Um, beliefs in in many parts of the world but especially in southeast asia where people believe that natural remedies are a cure for many ailments and often of course that can be true but in this case the sales pitch um, is not backed up by any scientific validity and so people were buying a product that was not going to do them any good and the side effect was of course leading to big over exploitation of these fish in the wild And, and the consumers didn't have any idea that their uh, actions were leading to the the, the kind of um, increased vulnerability to these these animals, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, that's what was happening. Let's backtrack a bit to you. You grew up in Dorset, am I right? Yeah, Dorset and uh, further southwest down in Penzance, Cornwall. So yeah. always by the coast. Always by the sea. Yeah. And were you like me, always jumping in the sea, or was it a? I definitely was. All things nature interested me. Um, rock pooling, jumping in the oceans. Grew up watching David Acker on TV and was obsessed with um, with wanting to learn about the natural world. And I always knew that I wanted to study animals in some shape or form. And, and it was really when my sister was given a fish tank. I think I was about 11 years old. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I kind of, within about a week, had stolen it from her and decided that I was going to, yeah, I was going to start breeding tropical fish. As a full-on full breeder. <laughs> yeah, so the, the house be kind of became this, you know, mini aquarium with lots of tanks with various. Fish why? And... Why was it that a tank was the thing to encapsulate your inspiration? What, what was it about? I think different... it's because the animals inside were were exotic and came from, you know, the Amazon and sure. you know Southeast Asia places where I'd never been and had seen on TV and was kind of excited to think that I could have, you know, a little microcosm of that ecosystem in my house and. You know, we had a pond and I loved goldfish in the mm-hmm. pond and I made the pond like 10 times bigger than it was when we moved into the house. And But it wasn't quite the same. So um, that kind of led me on a path towards fish, especially. Sure. Um, so, yeah. I can understand. I, a lot of my childhood was spent crabbing down in Swanage. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's wonderful. But once you've seen one Swanage crab, <laughs> you, you've basically seen them all. Yeah, I mean... Even now, when I go back to Dorset and I go back to the coast, you know, I, I love going out in nature. I still love going out and, and seeing the animals that I, you know, that I was kind of um, exploring when I was a kid. Mm. But there's definitely something, you know, exotic about going beyond where you grew up to, to sort of do you you know, s- explore and see something new. Do you see them in a different light now, though? I mean, there's a lot of work that's going on down in Dorset. They've, they built a surf reef in Bournemouth years ago, and the mm-hmm. impact of the marine life there must be huge. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure because I don't really get the chance to go. For example, I don't really dive in the UK anymore. I mean, I learned to dive here, but I haven't been back in the ocean, uh, mainly because it's so cold. (laughs) Yeah, I've become a fair-weather diver. I I think it's... I I learned to dive in a quarry in Slough in a dry suit in minus five degrees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, It's fair to say that I never want to experience that ever again. Yeah, it didn't... um, Doing my dive master in Plymouth didn't uh, <laughs> inspire me to to study UK marine species. I certainly made a good choice when I thought, you know what, manta rays, you know, they, they're found in really nice tropical locations. That's a good, 
good animal to study. It's, it's, it's fascinating, actually, because I... The, the reason why I reached out to you initially is because I'm heading out to the Maldives really soon. And so I wanted to talk to someone about the matter before I went out. And then working out where you were based, I was presuming it would be in one of the beautiful atolls, primarily. And then there was an address in Dorchester. And I was like, OK, that's just round the corner. I could have gone <laughs> there. And then you look into so many other marine movements. There's the, I think it's the Blue Ocean Group there, based down on the south coast of England as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much sort of conservationist marine research that sort of seems to focus upon Bournemouth, Poole, Weymouth, Portsmouth. Well, there's a lot of universities, marine marine courses in the universities in those locations. So I think that you... Is that where you went? Uh, Plymouth was where I went to university, yeah. Um, you know, Exeter, uh, Southampton. Um, these, are, these are definitely, you know, where you have maritime uh, associated communities and universities, then I think that draws people... Um, to those places to, to, to study and then they often end up staying there and you know ends up with conservation initiatives um, so in, what happened between university and the breeding tropical fish in your sister's fish tank days well i i didn't do that well at school um i wasn't the best student and so i i kind of you know when you go to a careers advisor i guess you're like 14 or something they take mm-hmm. you into a room they look at your grades and they sort of they sort of give you it's probably changed now, but they sort of gave me three recommendations. And have I got a green printout, like an adult matrix printout? Yeah, I got, probably, probably something man like that. Or... Well, mine was the number one choice, I think it was builder. And then it sort of said fireman, maybe. And then it was kind of like some other sort of tradesmanship. And I was like, I went into the the meeting, if it was a meeting, I guess, the, the discussion. With, with Wendy, said, the career advisor. And they said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to study fish. And she just kind of looked at me. and There's went, no money in fish. And she went, well, no, she didn't look at my grades. And she said, no, you need to be an academic to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I kind of, yeah, I sort of wasn't really particularly inspired. And so I went away thinking, well, you know what? I still want to study fish. So I sort of went a roundabout way. And I did mm. a vocational courses at college, um, which I really enjoyed. And I went from being a pretty bad student to actually a pretty good student because all of a sudden I kind of was like, this is, this is actually interesting and I can, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, I worked for then a couple of years in in the ornamental fish trade so in in like carp or well no it was more the kind of fish that i was keeping in as a hobbyist i was now working in the trade retail industry selling them so Mm -hmm. in a fish shop tropical fish shops down on the south coast as well no this was up and i moved to um milton Keynes. okay classy so i moved one of our producers lives up that way he uh, sings his praises as frequently well they have lots of garden centers and lots of people that buy fish so it was you know it was the place to be if you were if you were working in the in the ornamental fish, fish retail world. industry, so I did that for a couple of years, and I, you know it was great. I got to have even more fish in tanks than I could ever have in in my home when I was a kid. But I realised that it wasn't really for me. I wanted to go into the into the wild and see these animals that, for myself. At that stage, I mean. The intellect of fish species is in debate. I mean, one of the papers I read in preparation for this interview was that they think the manta rays are one of the few fish that can recognise themselves in mirrors. Yeah, that's a bit of a... Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a really tricky one. Self-recognition, self-awareness in animals, it's a very contentious subject. And there's, there's, there's been an increasing number of publications suggesting that all manner of animals are self-aware, you know. Yeah. Um, animals that you would never consider would be likely candidates and the jury is still kind of out and, and I, I I like to think that it's possible but I'm also skeptical because 
the study that was done really needs to be replicated. Uh-huh. And we as humans often have very strong biases and believe what we want to see more than maybe what can be validated yeah. with. Well, certainly with, if your end goal is getting information published, you might be well, you might want to tend towards slightly more dynamic stories. Well, yeah, well certainly the media that pick up on the publication yeah. do. And the publication actually was, you know, saying this is a sort of almost like a question mark at the end. We're not sure. It's an interesting finding, but we need to do more studies. But of course, the story when it's published, the question mark gets dropped and people make the assumption. And now, you know, it's a question I get asked a lot. You know, matters what they're self-aware, aren't they? Uh Well, you know, it's possible. They're certainly super intelligent. They're very curious. They're very social. They display lots of tendencies um, that would suggest they are relatively intelligent. Mm -hmm. But intelligence for a fish compared to, say, a bottlenose dolphin, Mm -hmm. it's very different. And also intelligence... It's perceived in very different ways, and and so it's very hard to know how truly intelligent an, an animal like a manta ray is. Yeah. I personally feel that when I'm underwater with them and I'm interacting with them, when they're looking at me, I get the distinct impression there's, there's something going on there as well. Yeah, there's something that suggests that they're super curious about you. They are probably wondering what I am as much as I'm wondering what they are, and that for me is a feeling that I probably am projecting onto them mm-hmm. i certainly am but i don't know how much of that is based in in scientific kind of validity was it your encounters with mantas and feeling that sensation a new one i mean you've been keeping ornamental fish in a in a tank and obviously i, I guess did you feel much guilt about that uh, not as a kid as i've grown older i've kind of you know I've had this conversation with many people about, you know, whether animals should be kept in captivity. And and certainly I think there's a line that you have to draw for certain animals. I think that aquariums and, and, and pets in various forms and degrees serve a a very powerful tool to connect people to, to nature, which is not often possible. Many of us, the majority of us now live mostly disassociated from nature we're in cities and towns and going to a public aquarium or keeping a fish in a tank uh, can provide that spark of enthusiasm and interest and engagement that leads to a much greater understanding and respect for animals so i think there's a it's place education for and conservation as sure. opposed to but it's a, it's a gray area because of course animals can be treated badly they can die they can be taken from the wild they mm. can be unfulfilled and and unhappy and i think we have to consider that because every animal i believe has feelings too i mean i, I think it's wrong to suggest that animals don't feel no. pain or emotions like we do i'm sure they do it's the jeremy bentham quote that i seem to be bringing out in every single version of this podcast is is it's not whether animals uh, can think or communicate it's whether they can suffer and I think it's pretty clear from most creatures that you come across is that they can be made to suffer. Of course. I, I, and I think that people... There's some interesting studies that came out in the last few years that suggested that animals like sharks and, and, and other fish show personalities. Mm-hmm. And, and people were like, oh my God, like this shark has a different personality to this other shark. This one likes to socialise and this one likes to be on its own. But when you actually think about it, of course they do. You know, our pet dogs all behave. We know that they have different personalities. Well, every animal, right the way down to even some of the most, um, you know, uh, primitive animals, I'm sure, behave differently. It's a trait that it's part of being uh, an individual as, mm-hmm. a, as an animal. 
So what happened from Milton Keynes onwards? How long before you were diving on a regular basis? So I, I decided to that, I, that life as, a, um, as a, an aquarist wasn't for me. So I enrolled in university in Plymouth. I mm. got a very kind um, admissions uh, professor who... And you're in your early 20s, I guess, about now? Yeah, I think I would have been about 20, yeah. Okay. And so I was kind of a slightly... It took you know, a couple of years longer to get to university, but I did a foundation year because I didn't have the qualifications. So I did a four-year degree, in essence, that was a marine biology with a foundation science year. And, and was that practical, or was it... How much time did you spend in the uh, well, you, I guess doing not much, not as part of the course. Like, I suppose you have, trying to think back now, you probably have a couple of outdoor field trips every couple of weeks. Uh-huh. Um, you have a lot of lab stuff. Sure. Um, but in terms of, of actual time spent in the wild, that was mostly done in my summer holidays. Every break, I would say, right, okay, while I was at university, I worked at the... National Marine Aquarium, mm-hmm. um, and every summer I would go off and do something. So I would go to Greece and do turtle conservation. Wow. Went to the Caribbean and did a dissertation for my for my undergraduate on cleaning symbiosis between cleaner fish and clients. Okay, found that really fascinating. That sort of behavioural ecology, and that seems to live true with mantas as well. They spend a lot of time being cleaned. cleaned yes, yeah. yeah. so I actually. You know, at the time, actually, that was when I went to the Caribbean. I went to Grenada. That was the first time I saw a manta. How did that feel? Well, it was weird because I, 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 it was such a brief glimpse, and it was from the boat, and I didn't really know much about these animals. It was like a shadow passing by, and I was like so excited. And my colleagues, <laughs> we were stop the boat, stop the boat. We like trying to jump in, <laughs> and the boat captain was just like no, nah, and he just kept on going. And so for me, it was it was a kind of it was technically my first encounter with a manta sure. but it was like a shadow from the boat so a shadow of what was to come exactly so i kind of discount it um it wasn't until i got the job in the Maldives after i'd finished my 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 degree in plymouth that i first properly got to see mantas what was the job in the Maldives? it was like a glorified snorkel guide so it was you know it was a great job it got me you know to spend all day swimming and diving uh, with manta rays i was being paid by four seasons resorts to work on a, a liverboard uh, a very luxury catamaran that just cruised around the atolls in the maldives mm-hmm. and my job was to take people out on the boat show them the animals diving give some talks and awesome you know pretty good pretty good job to have when you're sort of 23 four it year sounds old incredible it sounds yeah. like the much warmer much more pleasant version of being a sort of a chalet host in a ski resort yeah kind of same thing yeah i mean you don't get paid very well but it's like what they call a lifestyle job sure but i you know i immediately of all the animals that i was lucky enough to encounter like within my first week there or two weeks i was swimming with whale sharks and you know you've got dolphins and all these beautiful amazing tropical fish that i i'd never really seen um before but as soon as I saw the first manta ray, I was like, these are seriously cool animals. And there was something about them that really made me sort of go, you know what, this is, this is what I want to study. So how many years ago are we now? About a decade ago? So that was 2003. Great. So yeah, more than that, 16, 16 years, years ago. Yeah. So at that time, were there any charities, organisations caring for manta specifically? Or? Uh not really. Did people there know was, anything about them? Well, that was kind of the first thing I did, you know. I sort of, you know, get back on the boat and Wi-Fi was really slow, but I would kind of go on to, I don't know, maybe it wasn't even Google back then, Yahoo or Ask something. Jeeves. And I was like, ah, oh, she was like, manta rays, you know, what does, you know, the Wikipedia page would come up and it was, 
very, very little. There was virtually no publications. There was very little known about them. And I was trying to find someone to ask questions about them, people mm-hmm. who, who might be able to give me some advice because I was already thinking, you know, oh, maybe I could do some research on these animals. And there was a couple of people. There was a guy at the time who had a, a sort of a foundation in California um, where he was trying to raise money for, for manta rays. And, and there was a guy there called... Um, Dr. Robert Rubin, Bob mm. Rubin, and he's now become a you know, my mentor, a really great friend, and uh, and I, you know, I reached out to him and said, hey, look, you know, there's banters here. Um, he was studying them in Mexico and had been for sort of a decade or so. He was a college tutor and um, lecturer, but in his spare time, Damn. he would kind of run this this research program on the mantas in Mexico, and so I sort of invited him over to the Maldives. I said, hey, you know. Why don't you come and see some reef mantas? I've got a catamaran and a snorkel. Yeah, exactly. Well, I went to the resort management. I said, yeah, I'll ask them. I'll see what they say. Um, And the tsunami had happened. So the the resort was sort of Uh semi-closed. And the boat that I was working on was, you know, wasn't really doing much in the way of business because obviously it was a massive event that kind of upset the whole tourism industry there. Did it also upset the marine life substantially? No, not at all. No, they just... No, because in the Maldives, actually, it's a very different... Um, the Maldives is in the Indian Ocean. For Indian Ocean, about 300 kilometers slightly west, but mainly south of Sri Lanka. So if you go okay. straight down off Sri Lanka and India, you'll hit the Maldives. And it's a long, thin chain. It's about 1,000 kilometers long from north to south. Okay. Um, tiny little atolls. That little atolls. And they, they, they come straight up from the ocean depths, two 3,000 meters deep. So if you displace a lot of water, which is what the tsunami does, it just travels around the atolls and carries on okay. whereas if you have a continental shelf that it water lifts, lifts up over you, the top pushes and... up over the top and does an awful lot more damage which is why the majority of the people that died in that horrific event were killed in the coastlines of indonesia and sure. sri lanka and india and so on but the maldives you know several dozens of people lost their lives but actually in terms of impact on the reef nothing really um, so was it through bob coming out to meet you that you started to think about setting up a trust setting up a movement to preserve them or yes because i i invited him out with a view to sort of doing some research during the time that he was there and he sort of suggested that there was some um, charities and foundations that i might be able to apply to for funding that he would help me with Mm -hmm. and i formulated an idea of proposing to the resort management which were they were building a new resort and a new atoll and i kind of said you know hey would you they already had some marine biologists i was one of them but you know there wasn't any real research program and certainly nothing focused around manta rays so i said you know guests love manta rays maybe you guys would let me do some research and um i could live on the island and sort of just let me tag along with boat trips and stuff and to their credit they said you know well actually we'll support you with more than that we'll pay you and we'll, wow. we'll support the the creation of of uh, your project and so that's how it started in the Maldives and that's you know, incredible yeah so we're where are we we're 2000 and that's like 2005 five. now yeah at what point did the IUCN uh, register mantis as vulnerable so they had been uh, they kind of IUCN is sort of a no, sorry. That's the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Yes, correct. So it's 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 almost like a a status of the threat level for a species, and the further you go up the threat list from, you know, data deficient to you know, vulnerable, and then critically endangered, and then you know extinct, extinct and so on. Yeah. And so mantas are kind of on this list and already sort of moving their way up a little Climbing bit. Up the charts, and then we got to 2010, and we had enough. 
these assessments are all done on data availability. So if you don't have the data, an animal could go extinct, but you don't know yeah. how to classify it. So what by then we were doing was saying, okay, we probably have enough information now to know that there's impacts that are threatening these animals. They have very vulnerable life history traits, meaning they live a long time, they reproduce very slowly. Mm-hmm. And so... Do we know how long they live for? We definitively don't know for sure you can't age them like you can a lot of other fish Um, but we're pretty good guess now to say about 40 to 45 50 years would be about about right and is that through you having been around the same reef area and seeing the same creatures around correct yes now there's and not just not just in the Maldives now there's long-term studies in places like Hawaii in Japan where where people have and Mexico Bob's data that I was talking about where they have now individuals that they've encountered for decades mm-hmm. um, and I should mention at this point every single manta ray has a unique pattern of spots on its belly mm-hmm. they're born with this it's like a fingerprint so you just have to take a picture of an animal and you have a record of its existence and you can track it through time spatially temporally see where it goes how it changes as it matures and grows up um, and of course, when you stop seeing them, and there is there are multiple individuals now that have been seen for over thirty years, wow. and some of those animals, when they were first sighted, were all, already mature, and we know that they take about a decade or, or longer to reach maturity. Therefore, that's where your estimates of around about forty-five or so years come in. Does that also then, if you can see the the different individuals, that gives you, I guess, a rough idea of population, global population? Correct. Yeah. So that's what we use. The it's called like. Um, mark recapture study so that the animal once you see it and then you see it again that's your recapture and as you you build up your sightings and resightings of your individuals you can run analyses that will predict based on your encounters of these animals what your population size is likely to be and in the Maldives where we've collected so much data now over such a consistent period of time we, we've almost captured all the individuals uh-huh. obviously there's new animals being born sure. but we're at the point where we're pretty confident that we've recorded most of the animals that are there and it's the world's biggest population by far but we're only talking about say three or four thousand individuals i should note that we've recorded about four and a half thousand individuals but a, about a thousand plus fifteen hundred of those have probably died now because okay. we just don't see them anymore in your book, all of the mantas, or the, there's a, like a there's a catalogue, if you will, of all yeah. the different regular inhabitants of, of the reef. They've all got fascinating names. Um, I've got the book here. I can, yeah, probably, yeah. I can probably read them out to you. You can probably name them up quicker than I can find it, to be honest. Where is it? Here we go. There's Oslo Ramadi, and Reggie, Puddle Pirate. Yeah. He's a good one. Gonzo. How do you name these guys? <laughs> Are you running out of names yet? Well, yes and no. It, Beetlejuice, for example. Beetlejuice, yeah. Was that one of yours? M37, right? That's yeah. The code. There yeah. he is. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously to start with, it was just me giving them names. And, and then over the years, I've you know, had lots of staff and lots of interns and students come through and they've given them names. And then we, we invite anyone who sends us images. And if it's a new manta ray, they get to they give get it a name. name. Yeah. How many um, offspring do they have at each breeding session on average? So they give birth to just one pup, mm-hmm. and it's very large when it's born. So it's about a meter and a half in wingspan. That's sometimes larger. Yeah, so it comes out like a rolled up like a sausage with its wings over its back. They pop out, and they're completely independent from birth, and the females are pregnant for a year. So their reproductive strategy is give birth to just 
one pup, so a very small number of mm. offspring. And because it's such a large offspring, its chances of survival are very high, and therefore the females only give birth very infrequently, on average, say, once every sort of four, five, six, even in the Maldives, even longer than that, seven sure. years. So that means they've adapted to a mode of life that enables them to reproduce in those years when productivity is high, but in those years when there's not much food around, they can just go through a, you know, a lean period and they will survive that because of their strategy. Sure. But as soon as you start to target an animal through um, human impacts, they can't sustain those kind of threats. And that's why the populations decline very quickly. And that's why the Man's Trust exists, I guess. That's why we exist. So yeah. what are your key objectives? What do you want to do? Well, I mean, the key objective is to see manta rays protected and their relatives in, in a marine ecosystem that's that's thriving. You know, it's it's a grand vision. We would love to see, you know, manta rays effectively protected and managed. And to do that, you, you have to protect and manage the whole reef system that they, they live within. Um, so without healthy oceans, you cannot have healthy manta populations. And but this, if, if these are swimming the entire globe, the... Um well, tropical oceans, yeah. How do you protect that large an area? Well, within within that that global range, you have um, lots of subpopulations. So these animals, although they um, occur over a very large area of the ocean, each individual and each population are sporadically dispersed in these hot spots of productivity okay. around, the, around the world. So you can preserve these key so, areas yes. and then the population... So as, if the Maldives, for example, is, is effectively protected, then the population there can serve as a, a sink to repopulate other areas where animals might be depleted through, through fishing. So you have to target and manage those key aggregation sites, those feeding areas, those cleaning sure. sites, uh, and that's the, the best way to go about, about protection. But of course, you still need to protect lots of the ocean do you find therefore that through having sort of tourism you get to keep the fishes away the people who are trying to sort of illicitly harvest them purely from an economic point of view governance often comes down to just simply what pays best in terms of um, selling a conservation argument so if you if you just go to government and you say look these animals are intrinsically beautiful, graceful, important to the ecosystem, blah, 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 they, mm. they will kind of go, okay, right, I, I get that, but people need to make a living and earn money off these animals and we're going to exploit them. And if you say, well, if you can earn 10 million in the Maldives through a sustainable-ish, well-managed tourism industry, that's a lot better than earning 1 million yeah, through true. a targeted fishing yeah. um, program that in five years will be... Um, commercially unviable because you've killed all the manta rays. Yeah. So an economic argument will always be a very persuading influence over conservation management. I guess what's therefore kind of scary is where sea levels are currently rising. The Maldives don't have a huge amount of time left, I guess. If if the Maldives are underwater and the tourism disappears, I mean, we're still talking decades in the future, I would hope. But... Yeah, but it is a concern. Right now, you know, the Maldives' whole economy is driven by tourism. by tourism tourism is it that's it i mean fisheries yes but it's really it's really diminishing as a, as a sector of their gdp so for the maldives healthy reef systems are very important for their continued um existence and mm -hmm. certainly you know if the oceans 
rise to a point where tourism cannot continue to persist, then manta rays are not as valuable as a protective commodity, and that would lead to potentially exploitation. However, there are now laws and regulations in place to hopefully prevent that from happening. And I don't think that the Maldives... And that was through the work of the Manta Trust, at least in part. Well, in part, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've we've certainly tried to implement national and international legislation to try and prevent fisheries for these animals. But actually, the Maldives have been... They've always had a philosophy of protecting manta rays um, because they've never targeted them as a a species to exploit anyway. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a concern, but more broadly, it's just a concern for the health of the reefs. I think that with climate change, the rise of the sea levels is not the biggest They're concern. All bleaching it's out the ocean acidification, the yeah. temperature increase. That's what's killing the reefs. And if there's dead reefs, then the mantas cannot survive either. Are you seeing that on every time you go back out there? Are you yeah, seeing it's horrific. The, the, the scale of destruction, even in the short time when I've been going all around the world and visiting reef systems is is evident it's clear the reefs are dying they're dying quickly um there's less and less fish every time you go mm-hmm. there's more and more impacts of, of human activities in in other ways and i'm talking globally not just the maldives yeah. but our reefs are at the the forefront of the impacts of human you know destructive uh, effects on this planet and this is acidification of the seas as a result of carbon dioxide and various acidification other. certainly but more directly through um the bleaching events that occur periodically when we have the ocean warming sure. uh, trends okay. of el nino and so on and and just the pollution as well you know if you have massive increase in in tourism that comes with it development dredging eutrophication of the reefs which leads to algal blooms um over you know a lot more people visiting an area means a lot more people want to eat the fish. So you have much more pressures on, on consumption of sure. reef uh, fish. So heavier fishing pressures. Is there anything that you would like to see done now? What do you think is the th- main thing that we could do now to try and limit this damage that's being done? I, I really think it has to be... This stuff is, is global. I don't think we're going to address the problems of climate change, which really underlies the future well-being and sustainability of manned populations yes of course targeted fishing is a real direct threat that we need to address now but what's going to kill manta rays to the point of extinction is probably not going to be targeted fishing it's probably going to be climate change and so if we want to address that and really make a change then we have to do that at government level and at a global government level is that what you're working on at the moment we're we're a very small fry in 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 the world's conservation marine sphere, mm-hmm. um, and we see ourselves as being a niche organisation that can focus on trying to make change that will drive conservation measures directly related to these animals. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're going to be involved in climate change issues, and we're going to be a voice to try and push that forward. But we don't have the the capacity, the funding to address that directly ourselves. Um, but it's certainly something that we talk about and engage in when we're doing education, uh, when we're doing research. We try to find out the impacts of climate change on the manta rays, for example, how often they might be reproducing in response to um, to a changing climate. So we're certainly addressing it, but it's but it's it's it's, diff- it's a huge subject. It's a huge concern, and I think that everyone has a role to play. But it's not. Uh, it's not something that we have the, the ability to look at solely. So you're off to the Maldives uh, in the next coming days. Yep. You're on a liveaboard boat. 
Correct. What are you doing out there? What's your personal objective for this trip? I am going to... Well, there's two things, really. The, the first part of the, the trip will be um, tourism-led activity. So I'm there as... The, You're back with your snorkel the again. Manta, yeah, I'm basically going back to what I used to do, which is great, you know, diving with manta rays. And I will be on board with guests. I'll be diving with them. I'll be giving presentations, talking about the manta rays and collecting data. So we'll be taking pictures of all the mantas we see, telling the, anim- the guests about, about those individuals, adding that to our database of knowledge. One thing I haven't said is there are two different species of manta rays. Right? Two, well, actually three, but the third one's not officially described yet. So okay. there's a Caribbean, Atlantic third so species. The reef ray, the... Reef and oceanic. So you tend to think about them as being ones more inshore reef associated, like in the Maldives, that's the species that we see most often. Mm-hmm. But there is also a population of oceanic mantas in the Maldives too, which is the second half of my trip. So I'm going to go to a very remote atoll in the south, which is a sea pinnacle that comes right up from the depths of the ocean. And that's where these oceanic mantas are attracted to the Maldives at a certain time of the year, which happens to be when I'm going to go there. Ah. You know, And we're going to go there and try and collect as much data as we can on the oceanic mantas. Brilliant. So you got in touch with Bob, I guess primarily because nobody knew very much, but I guess you, like a lot of other people, had a very distinct reaction to these creatures I mean is, why do you think people do have such an amazing sort of spiritual feeling with, with, with manta rays yeah it's a, it's a good question and it's one that I get asked a lot and you can lo- use lots of superlatives to talk about these animals they're graceful they're they're, um, they're beautiful to look at you can get very close to them there's very few wild animals that allow you to become you know so close to them in a, in a wild setting, you know, within inches, literally. Um, and they will come up to you and stare you in the eye. And, and there's very few animals, that wild animals, that will do that. And so that creates a sense of kind of connection and empathy that I don't think you get from, from most wild sure. encounters. But I, I think the best answer is always just take someone in the ocean and, and show them a manta ray. And then see what happens. you can see everyone reacts the same. That they are all inspiring animals and, and that's part what led me to want to research and conserve them and protect them but I realized that they become a flagship species that are emblematic of of what we what we stand to lose if we don't protect the sure. oceans more broadly and so that's really the aim of the manta trust yeah well I want to protect manta rays of course I think they're amazing animals but the wider message is you need to protect yeah. everything and and manta rays create that vehicle that pulls people through the looking glass that makes them care about the oceans and conserving it. Every single time we lose an element of megafauna or megafish or whatever, once we've lost a giant of the ocean or the land, people feel that loss, I think, very, very definitely. They do, and it's not really fair that one species should be valued more than another, but it's human nature, and yeah. we need to use that that powerful emotive force for good, which is a bigger driver, I think, than anything else. And I think that's really the the root of where conservation can be successful is is taking a Maldivian kid who's never snorkeled before and yet they're surrounded by this amazing world and, mm. and taking them into the ocean and showing them a manta ray and seeing their face, you know, light up and creating someone in that instance who's going to now be a champion for protection of a species whereas an hour before they couldn't really care less. They were sure. more interested in going and playing, you know, computer games um 
And so I think that's what we need to do the world over. We've become so disconnected from nature. And I think if you're disconnected from it, you don't have any empathy or care towards sure. it. And I think that's, that's a huge part of what I'm trying to do with the Mount of Trust is reconnect people to the oceans. So there are three questions that we ask everybody who comes on the show. Uh, I'm probably going to tailor them slightly for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? But when I say walk, you might obviously rather... <laughs> you use... mean swim. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, where would I go? Well, I mean, it's got to be Hanifaru Bay in Bar Atoll in the Maldives. It's a place I've spent a huge amount of my life underwater and yet it's somewhere that every single time you get in the water there even if there's just one manta ray even if there's no manta rays there's always something to look at but it's a a magical place where i think it truly is one of the world's great natural wonders there's very few what places. is it about it is it the just a variety of species is it the no, abundance? it's, a, it's, it's is it... literally an empty sandy bay there's very little it's it's not really even a bay it's it's a, a cul-de-sac of reef uh-huh. um that is has a shallow sandy bed and yet it can go from being this tranquil, completely empty, shallow, sandy reef system to 10 minutes later being full of... Mass population. 10, 20, 30, 40, sometimes 150, 250 manta rays, all the size of three and a half to four metres in wingspan. And it's an area the size of a basketball court. And all of a sudden, you're literally having to pull your legs <laughs> and your arms into your body because you're being slapped left and right by these giant animals that are gorging themselves on the plankton that's been swept into the bay do you free dive in those situations yes so it's a non-diving location so Mm -hmm. that was something that was changed something that i pushed for um, about 10 years ago to try and uh, make it a a snorkel only location great and the animals are all feeding at the surface you don't need to dive there it makes it a lot safer experience for the for the people and the animals i think one of the first things i encountered with free diving was reading uh, james nestor's book deep Right, yeah. I don't know if you've read it. It's fantastic. I have, yes. Yeah. Um, and the next time I go diving, I will be certainly recklessly putting my life in danger and not going with an aqua all the time. Well, I mean, I think, I suppose the posh word for snorkeling is free diving, but essentially it's just snorkeling. And you can choose to go down longer and deeper if, if you want and if you're, you know, you have the skills to do so. But, but for me, it's the ability to be unencumbered by noisy, Mm-hmm. clumbersome equipment and that you will find that the animals respond to you differently and and you can have a much more i think meaningful encounter me personally i think would you animals, say spiritual i'm not i don't know i'm not a spiritual person but it's certainly a moving experience okay. and, I, and i would say it's it's something that will stay with you and certainly with me forever and once you have those you know animal encounters and it doesn't have, it's not just a man I think all animals are amazing yeah. and I, I love being connected to nature uh, can I ask you a really childish question of course how long can you hold your breath <laughs> I don't know not as long as I used to be able to how long I mean three minutes to... no problem three minutes no problem while I'm free diving yeah but I wouldn't I don't, I don't really I don't like pushing it I'm not you know I think for me I've never enjoyed the sensation of going too far but mm-hmm. you know, as part of my job going and free diving with the mantas it's quite easy to do two to three minutes yeah Super. question number two yep. is we normally ask should we colonize the moon but occasionally i ask people should we colonize the sea so that's my question colonize the sea i, I feel like we already have in a way um we haven't 
ventured into all corners of the ocean, but I feel like we've exploited it and we've explored a lot of it. And um, I feel like we've touched it in in a in a negative way, um, but also in I believe it's more than fifty percent of the world's population live within something like you know mm-hmm. ten twenty kilometers of the ocean. I think most people are connected to the ocean, but colonizing it it's a tricky one to answer i'm not sure think of all the things you haven't seen that you could see if you had an underwater lab yeah well going right back to like jacques Cousteau, right they were some of the first people to build these underwater labs and they lived underwater and you know these these pods and yeah that's pretty cool i mean i remember watching the silent world and Mm -hmm. um hans hass's adventures as well and i you know fascinating yeah great but i don't think i would want to spend too much time down there I think just the the air quality gets so dense with water particles that everything just starts to get rotten. Yeah, I think fungus I would, I would gets imagine. everywhere. Yeah. Have you have you ever seen a manta ray give birth? I have never, and nobody has ever in the wild. So the we only, only know that they come out like rolls of carpet from. Well, we know that from a captive, captivity. Yeah. So there's been a female who unfortunately has died now, but she for, for like ten, fifteen years, I believe, was in an aquarium in Japan, and she gave birth to five pups. Oh, wow. And they managed to film several of those births. Do we think, therefore, they deliberately give birth out at sea? If we no, I just them. think that they're they're going to they live in a a world that we are only getting glimpses into and I believe they probably just give birth at night possibly um, in more protected areas where they would probably not want to give birth in front of a load of tourists that might potentially be harmful to their offspring so I think they just selectively go not necessarily to a place far far away just away from people as, as we all should probably yeah um, and the final question is if you could bring any creature back from extinction which would it be ooh that's a good one I don't know what would I bring back from extinction which species deserves it the most or, or, or would you do it retroactively if we were damaging enough to mantis I guess well, I mean, if mantas went extinct and there was an opportunity to bring back a species. I mean, I guess to bring back a species, it, you know, you need to have removed the things that caused it to go extinct in the first place. And, uh, you know, I think that a lot of species, even if you brought them back, would just go extinct again. Um, One of the fascinating things about the oceans is other than a few sort of giant Jurassic marine creatures, a lot of the species in the seas have survived, whereas species on the land have not. So whether they be uh, the sharks, which have lived for millions of years adapted obviously but we might have lost the the mega sharks yeah i mean we've certainly we've certainly killed some um large marine creatures like stella's sea cow uh the giant orc um, i love stella like, I, I don't know why i was looking up um i was looking up um, um history of mermaids and they were talking about oh like manatees and yeah so manatees dugongs. and then i suddenly realized that dugongs and manatees are the only two surviving of this much larger family and you've got the stellar sea sea cows and you've got everything else correct well and, and there there is a west african sort of pygmy manatee uh-huh. um which is so there's a couple there's there's sort of two or three species and then some subspecies but yeah there were the giant versions of these animals just only a few hundred years ago still around can i put you down to bring back a sea cow then Sure, bring back the... See, the thing is that, you know, I I started and run an organisation called the Manta Trust, but the amount of times people think I run the Manatee Trust. <laughs> so actually, I don't know, I don't, maybe I'm just doing... You don't my, want to give yourself too much work my to opposition do. <laughs> even more of a, a favour by bringing back the, 
one of their species. <laughs> Fantastic. Sure. Bring, bring on the, the stellar sea cows. Bring on the stellar sea cows. Um, Guy, thank you very much for talking to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. If people want to know more about the Manta Trust, they can find you on the website, which is www.mantatrust.org. Uh, and you're on Twitter? We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, uh, Instagram. So you can, yeah, all the usual outlets to follow us. We have a um, very active social media team. So hopefully you can engage with us there. And, and if people want yeah. to donate and give a little bit of money to the trust. Would be amazing. Absolutely. We're, you know, it, it's, we cannot operate without funds. Um, core funding just to run the, the sort of the, the day-to-day operations is the biggest part of the funding that we struggle with. So it would be amazing if anyone wanted to give us some money. They can do it via, you know... Uh, PayPal giving, um, yeah, a lot. Just our well, website easy to give us. Can money. they put it in a bottle with a cork and just throw it in the sea? They absolutely can, as long as they post it to the matter trust. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get the check. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much. My pleasure. A massive thanks to Guy for taking the time out to come and talk to me. If you enjoyed this, you'll be excited to hear that our next episode is my Maldives special. Expect turtles, dolphins, coral and seagrass, and you'll find out if I actually got to swim with the elusive manta rays. Until then, if you've enjoyed this, leave us a review on our podcast provider. And as always, further information about Guy and our other guests can be found at treesacrowd.fm. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy.